Today on am to dm I'm talking to actor Jesse Plemons, who is right here Hello. all about El Camino, which is the Breaking Bad movie. So stay tuned and we'll see you on the timeline. Good morning, Twitter. I'm Alex Berg, she's Chantal Rochelle, and you are watching AM to DM. Hey, Hello. Hey. Hi. Back reunited. I know. You're making your triumphant return. I sure am. Yes. How are you? I'm great. I'm, I have to say, like, Mondays are not my day, but coming in and getting to see you was such a treat. Listen, so. Alex, when I woke up this morning, I said, I'm up before God is. <laughs> I woke up before he did. So I was like, st I'm still waking up. So I'm so happy to be here with you today. Yeah. So excited. All right, y'all. Let's get into some Halloween fun this morning. With Halloween just three days away, our favorite celebs went all the way in on the costumes. Brie Lurick, you tweeted, Gabrielle Union turns 47 in two days, and she still looks like her 28-year-old self and bring it on. Hashtag goals. For real. She looks so good, and it took me a minute to like think about 20 years. 20 years. Like, that is a long time, and she still is rocking that the, the little outfit. She looks fantastic. I thought, I didn't know she was 28 when that movie was. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Like, she looked, so. I thought she was 15. She looked 15. T today, she looks 15. And her daughter, oh my God, just that legacy, bring it on. How beautiful was that? I loved it. I love it. Also, I feel like you know, everybody wants to do a good matching costume, like whether it's a couple's costume or a costume with your kid, and she uh -huh. nailed it. Nailed it. Kavya, her daughter, she's coming for all of us. She's going to be in Bring It On 35. You know there's <laughs> going to be a, a, so many more movies. What did you do this weekend? So I, too, dressed up. Okay. Yes, I was Cruella DeVille. Okay. And my wife dressed up as a Dalmatian, and I just want to thank her for her well, contribution. I mean, her. I have to admit, like, her costume was definitely the more comfortable one because it's just kind of like this spotted jumpsuit situation. And then I just, like, I did the whole thing. I had the dress, I had the wig, I had the, like, faux Dalmatian fur. So it was really fun. And it's, I love playing, like, a little persona kind of mm -hmm. moment, like getting to be like the villain. Yes, where's so. that leash though? Where was the leash? We were missing one okay, thing, okay. and yes, it was the leash. So we didn't get all, <laughs> we got a lot of props together, even had the fake cigarette, but we did not get the leash together. Okay, so. but I loved it, I was feeling it. Yeah. But also like to crawl, what, what an easy like costume. I know, right? Y'all exactly. both win, that was yeah. great. That was um, did you dress up? I, I did not. Um, I dressed up last year, and I feel like my costume last year is the gift that keeps on giving. I could dress up as this every year. So to give you context, <laughs> this is a Heidi Klum's Halloween party last year. I dressed up as Kanye. And my hat says "Make Kanye Great Again," and my shirt says "In My Sunken Place." And it's this is to say, so hilarious. I could wear this shirt, this outfit today, and probably next year because Kanye stays tripping, doing the mess. Like it is still very relevant. It's very relevant, unfortunately. So yeah, I'm just gonna have that be my costume again this year because Lord help Kanye. I, I have to say, one of the most impressive things is that you also just put all of it together on your own, right? Yeah, like, you, yeah. you came up with the hat, the yes, shirt, the yeah. whole thing. Amazing makeup artist Ashley Dalton put it together. Yes, evergreen content right there. Incredible. <laughs> well, all right, Twitter, you know what to do. Let's take it to the timeline. What are you dressing up for as Halloween this year? Or what are you dressing up as for Halloween this year, I should say? Let us know using the hashtag am to dm Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi has died. The ISIS leader was cornered in a dead-end tunnel with three young children, then blew himself and the children up, Trump said. Test results then confirmed the remains were his, according to the president. Under Baghdadi, ISIS committed beheadings, terror attacks, war crimes, and kidnappings. Joining us now to discuss is Mehdi Hassan, a senior contributor at The Intercept and host of their Deconstructed podcast. Hi, good morning, Mehdi. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, what <clears throat> is the significance of Baghdadi's death, and how much will it impact ISIS's power? 
So it's significant in the sense that he's the leader of the organization. He's made it into what it is today. Uh, he's the first terrorist leader in modern history to actually set up a kind of state. He, you know, at one point he was running a, 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 a territory the size of Portugal in Iraq and Syria, had millions of people uh, forced to live under his rule as a quote unquote caliph. Uh, of the people there. So killing him is a big deal. He was the face of ISIS, the leader of ISIS, the first caliph of ISIS. Um, and he built this personality cult around him. So hopefully it will demoralize some of his followers. That said, in the short term, it may energize some other followers to try and take uh, action in revenge, retaliatory attacks. The experts on terrorism are divided on whether, you know, decapitating the leader of a terrorist organization uh, actually destroys that organization or undermines that organization in the long run or not. The evidence is mixed. But this is a big deal. Um, he was on the run in northwestern Syria when he was found. Um, and, you know, I'm happy he's gone, as I'm sure most people around the world are. But we have to wait and see what impact that has on the group. Because even over the past year where he was in hiding and not really operationally in command of ISIS, you have to remember, ISIS had carried out horrific attacks as far afield as the Philippines, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, even in France. And that was without him being operationally in command. So let's not be complacent about what comes next. Mm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, how Trump uh, has characterized everything that happened this weekend. Um, he uh, described watching the operation from the Situation Room, quote, as though you were watching a movie. Um, and then he said it happened, quote, with a lot of firepower. Um, so what do you make of uh, the language that he used to describe what happened and, uh, and his victory lap over this? Donald Trump is singularly incapable of rising to any moment, even when it's put on a plate in front of him. All he had to do was go out and read a statement saying that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi was killed, praised the military. He might have gotten some credit from you know, some people, uh, even though, of course, he tweeted back in 2011, 2012 that bin Laden shouldn't be, that Osama, uh, that Barack Obama shouldn't be praised for killing Osama bin Laden. The Navy SEALs did it, but he clearly went out there and then he couldn't help himself because this is a narcissist, a megalomaniac. He is unhinged. He couldn't help himself from making the ridiculous movie references, from saying uh, Baghdadi died like a dog, from going on a side rant about how beautiful the dog was that chased him into a tunnel, from lying about a book he wrote in 2000, which he claimed he had told uh, the government to kill bin Laden. No such paragraph or sentence exists in that book. He could not help himself because whenever he goes off script, whenever he's not reading from an auto cue, we see the real Trump. The real Trump is uh, unstable. He's reckless, he's impetuous, and he's a narcissist. This was all about saying, me, me, me. At one stage, he even tried to play down the importance of Osama bin Laden just so that he could say, well, I killed Baghdadi, who is a bigger deal. I mean, I would say it's playground tactics, but that would be an insult to all the children in playgrounds this morning. <laughs> <laughs> His rhetoric is intense indeed. How similar, speaking of the Obama administration, the Osama bin Laden killing, how similar is Trump's rhetoric compared to President Bush's in the early 2000s and even under the Obama administration with the Osama bin Laden killing? How similar is that rhetoric with Trump that we're seeing here? So a couple of things. Uh, number one, a lot of people on Twitter have made this point that, you know, uh, when you watch older, we just saw Barack Obama at the funeral of Elijah Cummings at the memorial, and you see, oh, wow, uh, this country used to have a president who could actually speak with, uh, you know, restraint, with compassion, with empathy, with grace, um, actually show leadership. And I had many criticisms of Barack Obama and things he did, but there's no denying that he's a very good speaker and he knows how to be a normal human being, uh, unlike Donald Trump. And you see that in the difference in the statements Obama made and the statements Trump made uh, on Sunday. Having said that, there is a similarity that I think we should all take seriously, which is in 2006, under George W. Bush, the United States government 
killed Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who was the founder of al-Qaeda in Iraq, which is the predecessor organization to ISIS. And when they killed him, Bush said, this is a significant victory in the war on terror. Turns out it wasn't. The attacks continued in Iraq. In 2010, they killed his successor, a man named Abu Umar, Abu Omar al-Baghdadi. The American general said at the time, oh, we're turning the tide against terrorism. This is a significant victory. In 2011, Osama bin Laden killed, uh, uh, Osama bin Laden was killed by Barack Obama. Anwar al-Awlaki, another al-Qaeda leader, was killed by Barack Obama. Again, at both times, President Obama said, these are great victories. Are you spotting a trend yet? We keep killing these terrorist leaders and we keep saying this is a great victory. But terrorism continues. These groups sometimes get, get worse. You can't kill your way to victory in the quote-unquote war on terror. You have to deal with the underlying conditions that produces the bin Ladens and the Awlakis and the Baghdadis of this world. Weak governance, failed states, corruption, sectarianism, U.S. support for dictators and tyrants. You have to deal with those conditions. Otherwise, these groups are never going to go away. Mm. I want to talk about a, a clip of you, actually, that is getting uh, a lot of traction. Um, you were on MSNBC um, this weekend, uh, and, and you said that Baghdadi was, quote, a man whose primary victims were Muslims, who was loathed by Muslims. Um, clearly, uh, that has uh, resonated with a lot of people. Um, why do you think that it did? I think for a couple of reasons. Uh, number one, I think uh, for Muslims, I've get, been getting a lot of texts since yesterday morning, thank, thank God you said that, because as I said in that clip, I don't pretend to speak for Muslims, I don't portray myself as a Muslim journalist, but on moments like this, where someone who is so reviled within Muslim communities across the world is, is, is gone, uh, is dealt with, yes, there is a kind of catharsis to say, God, good riddance to this guy. He was such, he wasn't just a mass murderer, which we could all condemn as human beings. He was a disgrace to Muslims. I mean, he called his group the Islamic State. He claimed to be acting in the name of Islam and therefore left the rest of us, 99.9% of Muslims around the world who loathed him, having to always pick up the pieces and defend ourselves and deal with the Islamophobes who were emboldened by his behavior and deal with all the kind of suspicion of Muslims in public life in the West. Um, ISIS definitely heightened Islamophobia in the West to a level not seen since post 9-11 and Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. So in that sense, I think for a lot of Muslims, it was cathartic. I think for a lot of uh, non-Muslims, maybe liberals, you know, we hear people say all the time, oh, Muslims never condemn terrorism. Well, I think it's very clear that not only do Muslims condemn Baghdadi, the important point I think here is that Muslims lost their lives fighting ISIS. Mm. 10,000 Kurds, but the Kurds are Muslims, we often forget that, laid down their lives fighting against Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi and ISIS in Syria. Thousands of Iraqis, Shias and Sunnis laid down their lives fighting against ISIS in Iraq. When we talk about, oh, why don't Muslims condemn terrorism? Oh, is ISIS a product of Islam? Hold on, the people fighting and dying to stop ISIS are predominantly Muslims, and the victims of ISIS are largely Muslims. And that's an important point. And you'll notice Donald Trump didn't say a word about any of that in his statement on Sunday morning, conveniently. Yeah, I actually want to get to something that you tweeted about the Kurds. Uh, you said, can a reporter right now please ask Donald Trump this? To clarify, Mr. President, at exactly the same time you were abandoning the Syrian Kurds to be slaughtered and insulting them and telling us all they weren't at Normandy, those same Kurds were helping you find Baghdadi. So why do you want to call this out? Isn't it disgusting that the President of the United States has spent the past few weeks mocking the Kurds, attacking the Kurds, the Syrian Kurds, who helped the United States in Syria, who fought against ISIS, laid down 10,000, 11,000 lives, according to some estimates, fighting ISIS in Raqqa, helping to destroy the quote-unquote physical caliphate. And here's what's interesting. We now discover that while Donald Trump was giving the order to pull out U.S. troops and abandon the Kurds, while he was going on TV and mocking them, saying, well, they weren't at Normandy, or saying, there's lots of sand for them to play with. They're like kids who we can pull apart, he said at his rally recently. While he was mocking them and abandoning them to be slaughtered, 
Behind the scenes, those same Kurds were still, even after the pullout order, giving the United States key intel to help the United States Special Forces find and kill Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. So when he comes and says, I want to take credit for this, and on Sunday he mentioned the Kurds in passing, although he, he said, you know, the Russians were great. He didn't say the Kurds were great. He did mention the Kurds, and we now know from official reports that Kurdish intelligence played a key role in finding Baghdadi in northwestern Syria uh, on Saturday. It's outrageous. He can, he can do the two things at the same time, and no one calls him out on it. But that's Donald Trump, an outrageous figure. Well, Mehdi, we could easily keep on talking to you about this, um, but we have to leave it there. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Moving on to the story taking over the timeline right now. Democratic Rep. Katie Hill. Here's a tweet from reporter Heather Cagle. Now, Katie Hill resigning after allegations of improper relationships with staffers. And here's a tweet from the New York Times. Representative Katie Hill said she will resign amid an ethics investigation. She denied a relationship with a congressional staff member, but acknowledged a separate relationship with a member of her campaign team, which is not covered under House rules. Joining us now to talk about this story is political reporter Heather Cagle. Good morning. Good morning, guys. How are you? Good. Uh, glad that you're joining us. And you broke this news. So walk us through the past 24 hours of this story. Well, I think so. I began getting calls yesterday, early evening, that uh, they had heard folks had heard rumors that Katie Hill was going to resign. And so we reached out to her office and at first um, they declined to comment. And then eventually it became clear that a lot of staffers on the Hill with connections to her within her office and on her campaign had heard the same thing. <clears throat> and so we were able to get it confirmed. And Hill had planned on actually putting out a statement this morning. I'm told she wanted to wait until this morning, but the news wouldn't hold. And my understanding, and she laid some of this out in the letter that she put out after we broke the story, but my understanding is she still maintains that she did not have any kind of relationship with her congressional staffer, which would have been a violation of House rules, and what, which is what prompted the House Ethics Committee investigation. But she was aware that her husband, who she's going through an acrimonious divorce with, has several other photos and possibly text messages that, while not illegal, are embarrassing to her and folks that are close to her. And so she decided that resigning would be the best way to hopefully stop the publication of these photos and kind of the drip, drip, drip of embarrassing information that came out over the last week or so. Well, wow. And Heather, did this story appear in an attempt to smear heel in any way? Uh, yeah, I mean, so she says that this was an act of revenge porn by her husband who teamed up with conservative pundits to take her down. And it was a political smear campaign. And if, I mean, if you look at what was coming out, there were a lot of um, nude photos of her and photos of her in compromising positions that were published on conservative outlets that didn't have anything to do with the underlying allegations of her having this relationship with a congressional staffer. The photos that came out were mostly pictures of her with the woman that she had a relationship with on her campaign, which again is not a violation of house rules. And Hill acknowledged that relationship last week and apologized for it because the power dynamics between the two women, um, Hill was the congressional uh, candidate and this woman was a young staffer on her campaign. And so there were some questions about the balance of power in that relationship. And so Hill apologized for that, but said, you know, that is not a violation of house rules. I plan to stay. But then these photos of the two women and just photos of Hill, intimate photos of her doing things that, you know, if you're a political uh, 
candidate or a congressional member you just don't want out there, those kept coming out. And it appeared that they weren't going to stop, uh, is my understanding. And so, yes, she absolutely says it's a smear campaign. She believes that. And I think she said now what she's going to do is take up the cause of revenge porn and fight back against that as an activist because it does seem to drive more women out of office than men and keep women from running. Mm. Um, now, Speaker Pelosi made a statement uh, about this. Uh, she said, quote, uh, about Hill, she has acknowledged errors in judgment that made her continued service as a member untenable. We must ensure a climate of integrity and dignity in Congress and in all workplaces. Um, how are Democrats responding? I think privately, there are Democrats are concerned about the message that this sends that Hill has, she hasn't admitted to any wrongdoing that would force her to resign. And instead, she was forced out by, um, you know, in their mind, an ex-husband, soon to be ex-husband that just wanted to seek revenge against her. And if you remember, Hill was one of several Democratic freshmen who are in their 30s. They're much younger than a lot of members that have served in Congress who came to Capitol Hill last year. And they have a digital history, a digital trail that a lot of these older members who are around Pelosi's age, who are in their 60s and 70s, just don't have by nature of, you know, not using the internet, not having Instagram when they were in college and high school and things like that. But these younger members like Hill do have this history and do, you know, I think a lot of them are kind of looking around and are worried about the precedent that this sets for younger members and candidates who are running. I mean, will they be, if even if they don't do anything wrong, is there the possibility that they too could be forced out just because of embarrassing photos or an embarrassing incident or an embarrassing tweet, you know? So I think those kind of process questions are going through a lot of their minds right now. Wow. And Heather, do we know what the ethics investigation on Hill will entail fully? No, I think there is some question. Um, I'm not entirely sure on this, but my understanding is that when a member resigns, I think the ethics investigation would stop because she's no longer a member. What they were going to look into, though, as she was a member, was whether she had this relationship with this congressional staffer who also happened to work on her congressional campaign. But in the House, after uh, all the Me Too allegations last year in 2018, the House passed its own set of rules that forbid relationships between members of Congress and their staffers. And that came after nine members stepped down or resigned after various allegations of sexual harassment, sexual assault, you know, just inappropriate contact, things like that. And so congressional leaders looked around and they're like, you know what, we have to do something. And so they forbid these relationships because of the power dynamics. Can a younger staffer in someone's office really actually consent to a relationship with their boss was the question that they asked. And so the ethics committee was going to look into whether Hill did have a relationship with the staffer in her office or not. And again, she has vehemently denied any relationship with this congressional staffer. And there hasn't been any proof or anything that surfaced. There were allegations published in these conservative outlets, um, text messages that allegedly came from Hill's husband, but no, no proof. But the ethics committee, once allegations like this become public, they generally do take it upon themselves to just look into things like this and make sure that it didn't happen. All right. Well, Heather, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Coming up on today's show, I'm talking to actor Charlie Weber. And up next is Fire Tweets. 
Welcome back. It's time for Fire Tweets. And you know what? Why wait? Let's just get right into Let's these. Let's do it. Bog, you tweeted, I would like to be ratatouille Where's the rat? Who's good at my job? Where is it? Ratatouille Where, Where's the Where'd rat? Where'd it go? Where'd I need, it go? I need the rat. I need the rat. <laughs> All right, y'all. Chihiro, you tweeted, should have went to YouTube instead of a four-year university. Uh, I love this one because maybe I should have done that too. Hacks. So, I actually wish I would have done that. TED Talks. Yeah. Learned a lot from TED Talks. Let's do it. Also, how to fold a sheet and hacks of how to get done and not spend an hour doing that. See, that's the thing that's like actually useful mm-hmm. in life. Yes. So anything that teaches me more common sense, yeah. that's the kind of thing that I need. Y equals M plus X, Y, B. I haven't used that a day in my life. I Never. completely, you're really Never. taking me back. I'm having flashbacks Never now. Never used it. Yeah. No, no. All right, y'all, let's take it to the timeline. What did the internet teach you that college failed to? Tweet us using the hashtag AM to DM. Naveed, you tweeted. Does anyone else only get out of bed in multiples of zero or five? Like, it gets to 721 and I'm like, nah, I've missed it, I'll get up at 725. Mm, drag me. <laughs> My clock said 631 this morning, I said, I'm gonna wait till 640. Hey, it has to be an even number. Yeah, yeah. and that nine minutes oh, really makes a difference. made all the difference. Oh, it's so great. All yeah. right. Edison, you tweeted, where do you see yourself in five years? Look, buddy, I'm just trying to make it to Friday. I... I feel this one. I, I, I feel, feel it this in my one. spirit on this Monday. I feel mm-hmm. it. Ooh. Mm-hmm. All right, tweet of the day comes from Alec. Today I had 800 milligrams of caffeine, exercised for two hours, ate literally 80 pizza rolls, and did a face mask. The line between self-care and self-destruction is a fine one, but God, do I walk it hard, brother. And I have to say, I kind of co-signed. Living on the edge with 80 <laughs> pizza rolls? You 80 really pizza went rolls. there. I, I mean, I would have been at 90, but hey, to each their own. You would have walked, you would have even towed that line a little yeah, bit Yeah, a little, you know, more into yeah. it. <laughs> All right, y'all. Coming up, you get to see Alex's sit down with Breaking Bad actor Jesse Plemons. More AM to DM is up next. Here's a tweet from Michelle Goldberg. FYI, Lindsey Graham has a Democratic challenger named Jamie Harrison. Here's a tweet from BuzzFeed News. In an era of hyper-partisanship, Jamie Harrison is embracing a nice guy servant leader's approach to try to unseat Lindsey Graham, one of Trump's top allies. Joining us now is a Democratic running against Lindsey Graham for Senate in South Carolina, Jamie Harrison. Good morning, y'all. Good, good morning. morning. How are you? Welcome. Are we you? are good. Good to Thank see you. you. Um, and I want to start off by talking a little bit about your background and kind of yep. how you got to this moment. So you were the first black chairman of the South Carolina Democratic Party, then the associate chair of the DNC. So why run for office now? Well, you know, I sat back and I've been watching our senator. Um, and this was a person, Lindsey Graham, who I respected. Even though I disagreed with him on policy, I respected him when John McCain was alive. But then all of a sudden, the turn. It was like a, in, the invasion of the body snatchers or something, <laughs> right? Uh, and uh, it was just enough is enough. You know, I'm raising my two boys with my wife in South Carolina, and we want to have them be reared in a state where the leadership is of the quality of them, right? Uh, This guy is on both sides of every issue. Uh, He doesn't seem to have a backbone. And the the people of South Carolina deserve better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you have a reputation of being a super nice guy in your state's politics in this super hyper-partisan time. So why is that the right tactic to lead with? Why does that matter to you? It's it's time to bring nice back, right? Uh, You know, 
folks are just tired. They're fatigued. Every day they turn on TV, they listen to radio, and it's about uh, hatred and vitriol. And, and it's time to just bring the spirit of there's ability for us to work together, to, to find some common ground, to move things forward. When you can't even get a roads bill through Congress, then something's wrong. Well, why is a pothole partisan? Just get the road like fixed and, uh, and let's move forward. Hmm. Well, speaking of some topics that have been in the news, um, last week, President Trump compared the impeachment inquiry to, uh, quote, lynching. Um, what did you make of his use of that word? Well, and then Lindsey Graham doubled down on it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the last lynching in South Carolina took place in Pickens County, which is Lindsey Graham's home county. Uh, I remember as a young kid learning about Emmett Till. Uh, and I remember looking at the pictures of Emmett and, and looking at myself. I couldn't sleep for two weeks mm-hmm. afterwards. You know, lynching is a powerful term that is associated with racial uh, violence. Mm-hmm. And our president and our senators need to know that. They need to do better in terms of the, that. There's a lot of historic pain related to uh, that type of terminology. And it was disappointing. Uh, and it just was more evidence to me that it's time for a change. Mm. Um, you mentioned that uh, Senator Lindsey Graham doubled down on uh, what Trump had to say about it, and you then invited him to the groundbreaking of uh, an African-American museum, the African-American Museum in Charleston. Um, did he ever respond to you about yeah. taking you up on that invite? He didn't, and he didn't show up. Uh, you know, This was a project that was 20 years in the making, uh, but he didn't show up. Do you know where he was? Where was he? He was flying down from Washington, D.C. on Air Force One with the president. Wow. And then where was he this weekend? He was golfing with the president for five hours. It's just shameful. You know, we really wish in South Carolina that Lindsey Graham would work as hard for South Carolina as he does carrying the water for Donald Trump. Uh, you mentioned Graham has been spending a lot of time with Trump, and he went from staunchly opposing Donald Trump to now being one of his biggest supporters. Do you think there's anything Donald Trump could do to lose Graham's support? Uh, I don't think so. He is the master of the flip-flop. And actually, today, we are rolling out uh, a new campaign, which is the Lindsey Graham flip-flops, <laughs> uh, which has some of his very famous uh, famous quotes, like, uh, you know, Donald Trump's a race-baiting xenophobic religious bigot. Or, no, Donald Trump is not a race-baiting xenophobic religious bigot. Wow. Uh, it's just sad that our center has become a joke and a caricature on Saturday Night Live. But it's time to bring some respect back to South Carolina. It's time to bring hope back to South Carolina, and that's what I hope I will do in this campaign. And how, with your campaign, how are you using that shift with their relationship in your campaign tech. Yeah. Well, you know, listen, it, right now we're just poking fun at Lindsay at the moment. But what we were really doing, we just launched a program called Harrison Helps in South Carolina, where we're going to every community in the state to help people deal with the issues they're dealing with right now. Because we don't have a senator that is there to deal with it and to help those folks. And so I feel compelled that that should be my job to go ahead and do it. And I don't need to be a U.S. senator to make a difference in the lives of people. But I want folks to know that that's what the role is all about. Mm. Now, um, BuzzFeed News actually uh, published a story about you. Uh, In September, um, Darren Sands reported that a Democratic consultant said that if you, quote, ever got in a debate with Lindsey Graham, I don't know if you have the chops to hit him in the way he needs to be hit. Um, So what was your response to that? Uh, Listen, I I love Darren, but and I don't know where that quote came from, but you don't grow up like I like I grew up Mm -hmm. poor, uh, single mom, you know, living in a rural community and not be tough. You can be nice, but you can still be tough. And so we are 
sparking a movement in South Carolina. It's about building this new South, which is more inclusive, much more diverse, and, and very, very powerful. And so I'm encouraging everybody, if you want to be a part of that movement, go to jamieharrison.com. You want those flip-flops, go to jamieharrison.com. <laughs> but, but this is going, it, it's going to be fun, and we're going to be nice, and we're going to be respectful, because that's how my grandma taught me to be. So I'm looking forward to the campaign. Uh, Lindsey Graham should not be looking forward to it, because we're going to be telling the truth, and sometimes the truth hurts. Wow. And you mentioned being raised by a single single mom. Yeah. And, and the first line in your Twitter bio is that you're raised by a single yeah. woman. And how does that inform what you care about? Yeah, it, it gives me a special sensitivity to a lot of issues that I know that young, uh, young folks are dealing with living in a single-parent household. Uh, you know, my mom struggled to really get a lot from me. I remember school supplies, how hard that was for her just being by herself to try to do it all. Uh, and so, therefore, the policies that, that, that impact families, I have a very, very special place in my heart to make sure that we're doing things to, to encourage those parents who, who are doing it all solo, all by themselves. Now, before you go, I have some tough questions for you. No, we want to get to know you. <laughs> we want to get to know you a little bit better. Um, and, and my first of those questions is, what are you watching right now? Oh. Like, I guess if you have any downtime, is there something that you're like streaming on Netflix or yeah, what are you watching? You know, so my wife and I have not, uh, we kind of, we just had a new baby. And so Congrats. we, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Six months. And uh, we fell down on our how to get away with murder. So we're doing like, you know. You know Charlie Weber's here today. Oh! Uh, <laughs> in the building, yep. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. My next tough question for you is uh, what is the most surprising Twitter account that you follow? Is there anyone, if we went through your, who you're following, is there anyone you think we'd be surprised by? Well, I, you know, I'm a big wrestler fan, so mm -hmm. I love The Rock. Uh, Ric Flair also. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then my last one is uh, what kind of music are you listening to? Yeah, I'm very old school, and so I, I listen to all the stuff my mom like used to listen to around the house. So it's a lot of Motown, uh, you know. Uh, I don't listen to a lot of stuff, new stuff today, which is sad to say, because my staff's like, come on, Jamie, get with the time. <laughs> I also listen to a lot of, like, Disney, because uh, I, I also have a 5 I would imagine for the yeah. kids, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, and this is my excuse. I like that stuff. Yeah, anyway. like, yeah. 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 Wills and Jamie, thank you so much for indulging thank us. Thanks, so for, thanks for joining this us. This is so great. It's so <laughs> great to see you. Good to talk to you. Thank you. Up next, I'm talking to actor Charlie Weber. There you go. Oh. <laughs> Natural Grits, you tweeted, that damn Charlie Weber drools. And Domestic Goddess, you tweeted, Charlie Weber is so fine. Well, we happen to agree with them, and that's why today, actor Charlie Weber is our Man Crush Monday! And lucky for me, Charlie is here with me now. Good morning. Oh, I didn't know. How are you? Flattered, I'm good. Man Crush Monday. Lovely, thank Who you. Who would you like to, to thank for this distinguished honor? I just, just I think everyone involved, anyone who, uh, who tweeted in, I'm, I'm absolutely flattered. I mean, like, what's it like to be considered a heartthrob? Like, you get embarrassed, you get nervous, you blush. Yeah, I do, I do. It's, <laughs> I mean, I think it's really, really sweet when people say nice things to me. Yeah. But, but no, I, I'm very, very flattered. Thank you. Of course, you're so welcome. So deserved. Now, this is the sixth and final season of How to Get Away with Murder, and yeah. I'm still coping with it. Me what too. was it like filming those last final scenes with this amazing cast? Well, you know, the thing is, I'm not dealing with it yet. We're right now filming the mid-season finale, oh, so I go back um, I'm here just for a few days. I go back to L.A. and shoot the back half of the season, and uh, I, think, I think because we know it's the end, I've been sort of just trying to enjoy 
the time with these amazing people and, and, the, and the amazing work put in front of me. And I think emotionally, I'm not going to deal with it till it's over. I, I can't do it right now. Yeah. You're, you're still in like I'm the still, mode. You're, I am. I'm okay. still in work mode. And then also, you know, it'll be, it'll be bittersweet and melancholy and the whole thing. Do you so. all have, have those moments yet or you're waiting until the end? I'm waiting until the end. Okay. I, I think everybody's sort of dealing with it in their own way. Mm -hmm. uh, but for me, I'm just trying to stay in it uh, completely, sort of in the moment of it. And Has then, anyone gotten emotional on set yet? Or... I don't think about this, not okay. yet. I think, okay. again, I think everybody's just sort of denying yeah. that or, or dealing with it in their own way. And I, you know, this season's been really intense and I sort of, around season three, I almost feel like I make my own show that mm -hmm. they splice into their show. Oh, wow. Because I don't see the, you know, I don't see the kids as we refer to them. I don't see them that often because Frank's always off doing his own thing. So does the finale leave room for like a spinoff perhaps? Uh, you know, I don't know. It's <laughs> The mid-season finale is just sort of setting up for a very exciting back half of the mm -hmm. season. And then I have no idea what the finale is going to be. You're like, hey, we'll see as it happens. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I mean, you play... Frank Delfino, amazing character, opposite the amazing Viola Davis. What's it been like these years working with her and what has she taught you? Well, I think initially you're just sort of in awe of her and then once you settle in, you just get to sort of watch this masterclass of what it is to be an actor. And with her, she's capable of such brilliance. Yeah. And then there are days where you, you I, I would never use the term phoning in, but days where it's just, it's a lot of work. And she has a way of being able to settle in and do all of that work and still keep it at a certain level that I've always really admired and something that I've tried to take away. Yeah, absolutely. And for me personally, I'm a huge fan of the show. And Frank and Bonnie, we are seeing this new dynamic with yeah. them. We saw, you know, Laura, where is she? Where, I don't know. Like, I'm, like, I'm still, every episode, <laughs> I'm like, where is know. this girl? I know, like, Is me she too. still on the show? Me like, too. No, where I mean, is she? I, so, I, and Frank doesn't know where she is either. Okay. I can't find her. I feel like I want to suit up and help Frank find Somebody her. Somebody needs to, and Frank. So, and I don't know, yeah, in the last few episodes that have aired. Yeah, and this new dynamic Frank's between not Bonnie and Frank. What can we expect to see from this, this relationship, this friendship between them? I don't know yet. Um, it's something that's just sort of came up and has been sort of unfolding through the story. Mm -hmm. And we'll see how that culminates and what that relationship becomes. But I don't know okay. quite yet. And when you're on set and you are you're working with these amazing characters, what are some of the things that you leave set with that you're just like, wow, like you're going to take into your future projects? What are the, the gems that you all talk about on set? Together? I think for me, the biggest thing that has happened in this is that particular group of actors. Um, I think just seeking out working with really talented people is something that I will constantly pursue after having this experience because yeah. everyone, everyone on the show is so talented. Yeah. And to have us all come together and be able to mesh all of our talents together has just been a real gift. Yeah, it, it's so beautiful. Now you're working on currently After We Collided, which is a sequel follow-up yeah, after starring that. and How to Go With Murder. So what has that been like for you? And, and what's it like going from like this role as Frank into stepping into another role? How do you balance the two? It was hard at first. Um, after came up and I was working on that character while shooting Murder and then I went to Atlanta for, for a bit to shoot uh, after we collided and it took me a minute to slip into Christian Vance as opposed to Frank and making sure they were very separate people because <laughs> they have very they have almost nothing <laughs> in common. So different. Uh, uh, but yeah, it was, a, it was a bit of a challenge only because I was shooting the show but it, it went really well and it was a, I think it'll be a good movie. And now this like Gen, Gen Z, this new role of what's it like working with this new dynamic and seeing like these young actors and, and having this new gaze because we see how to get away, with, get away with murder we see your character Frank but in this one we're seeing you in new dynamics so mm -hmm. what's that been like for you working with Gen Z thrilling uh, I was 
so excited to take on a new character. I love Frank with my whole heart, but playing one man for six years has been a new experience and, 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 and difficult in its own way. But uh, being able to take on a new role and be part of this new thing and seeing these young actors, it's inspiring. You know, yeah. the passion they have, they care so much. It's really great to see. Yeah. Is there a role that you have your eyes on that now that you've been a part of this character, Frank Delfino, for six years that's inspired you or things that you weren't even considering approaching? I don't know. I think it's opened up my eyes to... I never knew if, I never thought I'd play someone for this long. Mm. And it's been a joy and it's a challenge, but it's a challenge I would take on again eventually. Absolutely, and what do you want Frank Delfino's legacy to be? What do you want people to take away from his character? I really, you know, that's something that's up to the individual. I hope I've played him with a heart. He's a very complicated man and, and all the things that he's done have come from a very misguided love that he has for people. And I just hope people have enjoyed watching it. Yeah, I have truly enjoyed it. I feel like anytime a crisis happens in my life, I'm like, where's Frank? Like, where is he? I feel like <laughs> yeah, I can call too. you. So thank you for everything you've yeah, done. My for How to Murder. And can't wait to see what you do next. Yeah, thank you All right, much. y'all, be sure to watch Charlie in the final season of How to Get Away with Murder on Thursday nights on ABC. Up next, Alex Six Downs, Six Downs with El Camino star, Jesse Clemens. <laughs> Netflix US tweeted, El Camino, a Breaking Bad movie, was watched by over 25 million households in its first seven days. And Saul Goodman, you tweeted, I watched it about 10 times, give or take. How many times have you watched it now? Actor Jesse Plemons, the star of El Camino, joins me now. Welcome. Thank you. So, 25 million. This number, it's, uh, that's so many homes. That doesn't even account for the people who have stolen their friends' Netflix accounts. Right. Are, were you surprised that uh, just so many people have tuned in to watch this movie? I mean, that, that's a pretty substantial number. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I was surprised to hear that. I know I heard six million the first weekend. Wow. It's, uh, yeah, it's great. I'm glad people are enjoying it. Yeah, well, uh, I read that uh, you got the call out of the blue uh, to reprise your role as Todd. Um, so what was your reaction when you just immediately hung up the phone? It was the last call I ever expected to get. Really? I, it was a number I didn't recognize, and I thought it was a telemarketer, so I picked up the phone kind of kind of expecting to <laughs> just say, stop calling, and it was yeah. Vincent and Melissa. But yeah, so, so exciting. Who was the first person you told about the news? It's always my parents or, or <laughs> Kirsten. Yeah, you know. is it the kind, you, you, I imagine you have to keep it a secret for a long time. I do, I you know, only told close friends and family. Yeah. And every time I tell my dad something, he, he has the same reaction. He just starts laughing out of joy. <laughs> He's just like happy, know? happy yeah. for you. Well, let's talk about uh, how you got back into playing Todd. Um, it's been six years since you last played him. So how did you step back into this character? Um, I mean, I, I was a little nervous to, to find out if I still had it in me just hmm. because it was six years ago. And like I said, I just never imagined hmm. mm-hmm playing that character again. I remember really vividly being strangled by, by <laughs> Jesse all day, um, lying on the floor the rest of the day, looking at, at uh, Brian and, and Aaron doing their scene. Um, so yeah, it was, it was, it was a, lot of, a lot more fun than I, I think I was huh. expecting, and it was just a big reunion. Yeah, I mean, I would uh, imagine that um, in those moments you're like, this is definitely the end of the line um, for this character. And you actually, you come back in flashbacks for those who have not yet seen this movie. Um, Was there any part of uh, his backstory that surprised you? Well, 
I, you know, I, I left the series thinking that there there weren't too many unanswered questions I had mm-hmm. with Todd. And then in reading the script, you know, the, the two bits of information that that said so much, even though they were kind of small details, where you know his taste in music was a big one, and I was so angry yeah, that I hadn't figured it out myself. I was like, God, Vince, it's <laughs> perfect. <laughs> and then to to when I first stepped into Todd's apartment, I was really blown away, and it was just perfect. Because you know? of the pastels, right? The yeah, the Easter egg pastels and. It's just the, one of the strangest sets I've ever mm. been on. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was unbelievable. How does that help you? Like, does that really help you get into his head, like, being there and seeing all that? It does. It felt like the inside of Todd's brain. <laughs> Literally felt like being in his it head. Did. <laughs> well, you're also set to star in The Irishman uh, alongside some really big names, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Joe Pesci. Um, what is it like to work alongside those icons? Um, I mean, the ultimate, the ultimate dream, you know, beyond, beyond any, any hope I think I'd ever had. Um, and just, uh, uh, the best lesson you can hope for. Um, it was amazing. What does one do when they're getting directed by Martin Scorsese? You say, yes, Yes, sir. Yes, Yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) No, he was, he's so nice and, and, um, really encouraging and and you know lets you bring uh, as much as you want to it and um let us improvise a little bit he's he's the best mm. your character is chucky o'brien who is the surrogate son of jimmy hoffa who's played by al pacino um and i had to go back and remind myself of the story of jimmy hoffa and, and his disappearance how familiar were you with that story i was you know i think knew what the majority of people know, just that there was a, a lot of theories about, you know, what happened with mm-hmm. his, his disappearance and where his body was disposed of. I knew just this sort of basic, basic knowledge. Mm. Um, another trailer just dropped for a movie you're in called Antlers with Carrie Russell. Yeah. Um, it looks uh, kind of gross and terrifying. Um, what was it like to, to be on that set? Kind of gross and terrifying. <laughs> um, I was the third film I've done with Scott Cooper, um, the director whom I love, and yeah, Carrie Russell's incredible, so sweet, such an amazing actor, and yeah, the 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 creature um, which you see in the trailer, uh, played by Scott Hayes. It's it's one of the, like you said just the grossest mm-hmm. things I've seen mm-hmm. in a while. Yeah, you've played some scary characters, creepy characters over the years. Um, so did, was horror a kind of a natural progression for you? Not really. It was, another, <laughs> it was another surprise. And because it was Scott, uh, it, it, was, it was really exciting to see what his take on a horror film would be. Because, you know, it was outside of, of his realm. And I think he he did an amazing job. Hmm. He's really good at at building dread and and hmm. and 
you know, violence, hmm. which which works for horror movies, you know. <laughs> Indeed. Um, well, here's a tweet from Ashley Spencer, who said, Jesse Plemons describing the first time he met Kirsten Dunst is poetry, literal best couple, who must be protected at all costs. <laughs> and this is actually about when you told a story about your first meeting um, uh, on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, right? Um, mm. I was just struck by how open you were uh, about that experience. Was there any ever any hesitation to, to talk about your personal life like that? Well, I, I don't really love talking about my personal <laughs> life, but that, that, uh, that experience, it was, it felt so personal and it was impossible for me to, you know, give a proper, right. Of course. You know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, professional sort of speech and, you know, her family was all there and her son was there. So it, it, I knew that it was going to be seen by a lot of people, but I, I don't know. I had some things I wanted to say to her. Of course, so, yeah. yeah. You're both in uh, projects and, and movies that have such devoted fan bases. Um, have you watched each other's work before? I haven't seen anything. She's <laughs> yeah, I've of seen course. everything. Yeah. <laughs> Any favorites? Um, I, we were just talking about it the other day. I when I was living in Austin doing Friday Night Lights, I went to a theater, didn't know what I was going to see, just looked at what was playing, you know, at that time, and wandered into uh, Marie Antoinette and just loved it. I had no, knew nothing about it before and just loved the movie and thought she was amazing. And um, I mean, all of them, Virgin Suicides, Melancholia. Yeah, yeah, she's incredible. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you very much for indulging those questions. Yeah. I appreciate it. And congratulations on just the massive success of El Camino. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. And El Camino is on Netflix now. Stay tuned for more AM to DM. Here's a tweet from Jennifer. Read Jason Reynolds' look both ways. He hits it out of the park again. Ten interconnected short stories illustrate all that one can see, do, learn, and even miss on a walk home from school. Mr. Reynolds is brilliant as always. Joining me now is New York Times bestselling author of Look Both Ways and National Book Award finalist, Jason Reynolds. Good morning. Good morning. So first of all, I have to say congratulations um, for being a finalist for the National Book Awards. Um, how does it feel to have this kind of honor? It's amazing. It's yeah. amazing. You know, I, I, uh, I always try to keep it in perspective. Nobody's yeah. really deserving of it. So if you are nominated, uh, you just take it in stride. I'm humbled by it. I'm overwhelmed. Hmm. And most importantly, I'm grateful. Very cool. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this book. Um, I want to know where you got the idea uh, for this book, for each story to take place on its own block. Like, each one revolves around its own block. Where did that come from? You know, I think, I think ultimately I wanted to write about how when we think about young people specifically and we think about school, we always think about these classroom settings. But once the bell rings, everybody goes their separate way home, right? All of us have separate journeys, even though we share space for a, for a certain amount of time. The moment that that time is up, we all get to sort of explore our own worlds. Mm. And I think it's really necessary to show that mainly because it's on this journey's home where young people have complete autonomy. Mm. There's no adult supervision. Mm -hmm. They can learn all they want to learn. They can see mm -hmm. the good, the bad, the ugly, and the interesting uh, in that 10-minute window. Mm -hmm. Now, last time you were on AM to DM, you were talking about uh, Long Way Down, how you wrote um, it is poetry. Mm -hmm. um, and do you bring what you learn uh, from your previous book to your next book, or do you feel like you start from scratch every time you sit down to write a new one? I think, I think it's impossible to not sort of build upon what you've mm -hmm. already built, right? Mm -hmm. But I also like to make sure that I take a fresh approach. I can use the things that I've done in the last thing, the last book, um, as, a, as an extra added tool in the toolkit to make a new thing. 
Mm-hmm. When you were writing this book, did you revisit any of your own memories of being in the neighborhood? <laughs> of course. <laughs> of course. You know what? I think about, uh, especially when I was working on some of the stories about young men who were trying mm. to impress young girls and all of the things that we would do that were so ridiculous, making sure you smelled good, which of course meant you smelled bad, right? <laughs> making sure you weren't ashy and that your skin was moisturized and that you got your walk down and your talk down and all these sorts of really silly things that are really innocent, um, but are also sort of character builders and they make mm. you who you grow up to be. Mm. From what I recall, you don't actually name the place where no. this takes, yeah, the, the place where this takes place. Um, did you want to leave it ambiguous uh, intentionally? I did. I mean, it's the reason why every single block feels like an entirely different landscape, huh. right? You mm-hmm. can go to the left and walk through a hyper-suburban area. You can go to the right and walk through Brooklyn, mm-hmm. right? And I wanted to make sure that I left it that way and left it sort of open uh, and, and a bit ambiguous so that everybody can insert themselves into the story. Hmm. Well, I was struck by um, how you balance writing about uh, kids who experience anxiety, trauma, and PTSD. Um, you know, how do you write about uh, those topics without making it the kind of whole story? You don't write about those topics. Hmm. You write about those children, mm-hmm. right? And the key is to always write about young people, not to write about their issues or their traumas. Uh, those things are there to sort of add to their character and add to sort of uh, the, the flavor of who, of who you're creating. Mm-hmm. But it's all about the people, right? We write people. We don't mm-hmm. write problems. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, specifically speaking, black kids are often um, boxed in by the baggage of racism. Mm-hmm. So how do you want to challenge that in your writing? You know what? The the way I challenge that particular issue is that the way racism looks uh, in relationship to black kids and how they're portrayed uh, isn't always about sort of racism being enacted upon them. Mm. Sometimes it's just about the fact that so many of us don't feel like we can write, write, write black children unless they're either the coolest kid in school or the toughest kid in school. That's also racist, mm-hmm. right? The truth mm-hmm. is that black kids deserve to be whoever they want to be. They can be weird, they can be knuckleheads, they can be misfits, they can mm-hmm. be sensitive, they can mm-hmm. be scared and have anxiety and have all these other things. Uh, and, and, and that is how I combat it, by just showing them as whole. Mm. You also write about um, homophobia and bullying. Um, how do you write about that topic without uh, endorsing it or like trying to moralize about it? I think, I think ultimately my job isn't to teach any lessons. I'm not a teacher, mm-hmm. I'm not even a parent, right? Mm-hmm. My job is to uh, frame Uh, the context, frame the environment, frame the world in which we live. And so if I'm going to write a story about homophobia, it isn't to just talk about homophobia, it's also to talk about the person who is homophobic, Mm -hmm. right? And to talk about sort of who they are as human beings, because they're also human beings, right? How do we take their sort of story uh, up against who they have, um, you know, endangered uh, and, and have belittled and demeaned and show that both of these people are human and all those stories have to be explored for us to have a better grasp on the world that we live in. Mm. Now, a recurring question uh, in this book is, how are you going to change the world? Mm. Is that something you think about? Every day. Every day of my life. And the answer for me is quite simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only way that I'm going to change the world is if I change myself. Mm. And I wake up every day trying to make that happen. Mm. Now, uh, in the two years since you were actually last on AMTD, I can't believe it's been two years since you were here. Um, you've already written two books. Um, so how do you, what drives you to write so quickly? Honestly, I think young people uh, are in a point in their lives, so many young folks are sort of reaching a certain fork in the road where they're either going to pick up the mantle, where they're going to pick up their megaphones and let their voices be heard, where they're going to lead uh, the way. And it's my job to make sure that I've given them the work that's necessary to fortify them uh, on that journey. That's all. Like, that's what's driving me. Mm-hmm. I love I love kids, mm-hmm. and I want them to know it mm-hmm. as they step into the world. Mm-hmm. Like That is such a beautiful note to end this segment on, Jason. Thank you so much. For it's good to see you, for sure. And Look Both Ways is available now. Up next, more AM to DM. Welcome back. We're going to get into your tweets, but I just want to say that it's, I love when we get to interview people who 
they do such a good job conveying like mm. what their project is about, what they're about, that yes. it really makes you want to like read the book or watch it's the absolutely. show. Yeah. You want more and they really dig into it to bring it to life in a really beautiful way. Jason's it. Yeah. That yeah. was great. I was saying I can't wait to give, I have a 15 year old niece, can't wait to give her that book. So. Oh yes. Yeah. So good. All right, we'll get to these tweets after our conversation with Mehdi Hassan. Ron tweeted, Thanks, Mehdi. You never disappoint. And I got to say, Mehdi definitely had some That's one-liners. Mehdi came for, he, I felt like he was spitting 16 bars. He was uh, yes. it. it was so, wow, so good. And after our conversation with Jamie Harrison, Chinghez Memedov tweeted, Together, Jamie Harrison, I say. All right, I guess we got the Jamie Harrison. Yeah, that's yeah. a chant. That's a yeah. chant for you. Yeah. And thank you to our guests, Heather Cagle, Mehdi Hassan, Jamie Harrison, Charlie Weber, Jason Reynolds, and Jesse Plemons. We will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day, y'all. We did it. <laughs> <laughs>